It's a rainy Monday morning here in Melbourne, very cosy in the office here, and very excited to be putting this episode out this week. This is a conversation with Mindy Gill. Mindy is a Brisbane poet, a critic, an editor, and in 2021 she became the fifth rising star for Australian Book Review. And she published an essay in ABR which really, really caught my attention. It's called Till Real Voices Wake Us and We Drown. And the subtitle is The Maya of Identity Politics. I'll read you the first paragraph just to give you a sense of it. So it starts out, We can learn much about a culture by listening to how it talks about its art. The way non-white writers, for want of a better phrase, tend to be reviewed in Australia, tells us a lot about how we determine cultural value. Some reviewers place a premium on the author's biography, her identity, rather than on the work itself. The reviewer avoids critical engagement with the text in favour of a kind of reverential praise of its political messaging. This messaging isn't necessarily determined by the content of the work, but rather by a mistaken conflation of the work with the author's cultural identity. It's a kind of habit, a reflexive way of reading literature, especially literature by non-white authors, as if the mere act of writing a book were fundamentally and inevitably political, or as they say, an act of resistance. This is a really fascinating essay, and I would encourage you to read it. If you don't have an ABR subscription, please don't hate me for this, Peter Rose, um, email me. <laughs> I'll, I'll sort something out for you, because I really think it's, it's worth it. If you can't quite afford that subscription, I think you should still be able to read this. I've been trying to track Mindy down for a little while. About the time that I decided to do this was also the time I quit Twitter and I realized this was the only way I could get in touch with her. But our paths eventually crossed and I'm so glad they did. I had so many questions about this and I'm really glad that we got to just chew on this stuff a little bit. Because there are a lot of questions here and there aren't very many answers, but I don't think that that means that we shouldn't have the conversation. And I'm also glad that we get to have it in this medium because I think that's one of the great things that podcasts can do that written criticism can't is to present conversations like this with the human voice intact, to borrow a little from Mindy's title. As always, I would absolutely love to hear uh, feedback on this, questions you have, experiences you've had with some of the things that Mindy talks about, uh, you can email me anytime, poetrysayspod at gmail.com. I'll be back at the end with a bit of follow-up. I really hope you get a lot out of this. Yeah, I had a conversation with some friends the other week about the writer Audre Lorde and we talked a little bit about this thing of like conserving your energy when having conversations with people who have like slightly or even radically different perspectives from you. And I guess just to start with, I want to say like I know bringing you in here to talk about this article, I'm going to be taking up your time and very possibly quite a bit of your energy. That's okay. And, I give uh, you full consent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you? I knew what I was getting into. That's true. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, a general question to start with, but how do you preserve your energy in when you're having conversations like this? Like, what are some of the boundaries you have in place? Um, I I've not really thought about it that much. I think because this is a topic that genuinely really interests me. I'm also currently doing my PhD. Um, that's kind of related to identity politics in Australian literature. So it's kind of always in my head. Um, I'm happy that people want to listen to me talk about it. Wow, um, so you're writing a PhD about this. Okay, fantastic. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of where um, I got the idea to write the essay was that I was already kind of um, forming these ideas and my PhD supervisor is Sarah Hollenbatt, who I understand has been on this podcast as well. Yeah. And we were kind of, um, yeah, talking about, I guess, the ways I could, I don't know, I guess what I could publish on this topic that I wrote in my PhD to make it kind of, I don't know, more uh, 
real world related. Um, mm -hmm. And because up until, I guess, the pandemic, I'd only ever really published poetry. I never um, did any criticism and nonfiction, but I was always really interested in it. Um, so, yeah, when I started forming these ideas, I thought I'd really like to explore these ideas, but also be able to bring in um, more of my own perspective, which is harder in like a, a critical exegesis, because I guess when I first started publishing, I was on the receiving end of a lot of, um, you're Asian Australian, you must want to talk about X, Y, Z. Um, you're Asian Australian, would you come onto this panel, even though you don't write fiction, but you are, you will fit the brief of da 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 da. Um, so yeah, it kind of emerged quite naturally. Um, so I've not reached the stage yet where it's a chore for me to talk about it at all, because I think it's such a live discussion and I'm really interested in hearing other people's perspectives as well, whether they are very divergent to mine or align somewhat near. Yeah, it is such a live issue. And I have to acknowledge too that like a lot of what I'm saying here, I'm drawing on conversations I've had offline with um, poets and critics. So, you know, you guys know who you are and thank you <laughs> for helping me think through this stuff. Um, but I won't put you on the hook for anything that uh, I say here. Um, so, <laughs> so, so for people who haven't read it and I'll encourage everybody to go and do so after they listen to this, um, would you maybe be able to just summarize the, the general gist of the article? Yeah, sure. Um, so I did my very best to not make it a polemic in any way. And, um, ABR's editor, Peter Rose was really brilliant in supporting me through that, but I was looking at how, uh, I guess identity politics and identity discourse inflects Australian publishing culture. And I was looking more so at, I guess, the yeah, the publishing criticism marketing around authors rather than what authors, meaning writers of color, um, were writing themselves and just how there's a real conflation between um, the author's cultural identity and how their work was received and how there was very little separation between reviewing say if you were to review a novel by a writer of color and it was not favorable there could be a tendency a kind of impulse um to to kind of see the critic as maybe saying something about the author's race and I wasn't I didn't really aim to say whether one was good or one was bad but I just wanted to really look at how identity politics which in many ways has been kind of a wonderful I guess it's a resurgence in the last few years um but how it can the lines can kind of be blurred the subtitle of the article is the maya of identity politics and i think that's that's the key word for me is like you're looking at it from from these very different angles um what it is to review a non-white writer's work as a white writer what it is to review a non-white writer's work if you are also a non-white writer and then what it is to review work if you're of the same race, you know, what that what that also ends up as. And you look at kind of all the, the different pressures and assumptions. And at the start, you say, the reviewer avoids critical engagement with the text in favor of a kind of reverential praise of its political messaging. This messaging isn't necessarily determined by the content of the work, but rather a mistaken conflation of the work with the author's cultural identity. I'm wondering if there was a, a particular review that you read or a moment for you when you said, I really just want to put this out there now in an article. Um, I don't think there was one particular moment. Uh, I think it was kind of first kind of being the subject of that myself in a much smaller way where I would kind of sometimes be um, commissioned by really lovely, well-meaning editors. And I would send them work because I because I thought I've got to make my income. Yeah. But I understood that the work I was sending them was not my best. And I I guess I felt that I was often receiving praise that I didn't quite, I guess, deserve is the correct word. Um, but also just kind of a, a consistent sense that you had you had you didn't have to try as hard, at least me personally to be invited to speak on panels, to be published in anthologies, because I really, I don't have a collection out, um, but I felt that I would see my peers who I went to university with who have a much larger publishing output than I do, I would be asked to do things more than they would. Um, but especially I, I um, 
reviewed another anthology for ABR called Racism, and it was published by um, Sweatshop. And kind of reading that collection and then writing a critical review and then seeing the kind of public and sometimes private feedback that I would get because it was not an all-round favorable review and seeing how I was then being called racist or self-hating because I was saying the work in these collections or the editorial vision of this collection could have been improved and it was more um, that I kind of saw how suddenly people were dividing things based on race or or somehow conflating my critical perspective with how I must interact with other people of color um mm-hmm. and I've because I grew up on the Gold Coast in like the 90s and early 2000s um my father's Punjabi my mother's Chinese I say it so often I get them mixed up <laughs> um, and I understood that I never I didn't fit in culturally and that was kind of fine and I understood it was quite a specific intersection of cultures unless you were from Malaysia in which there are quite a few of us mm. uh, but so I also never had the idea that there was one sense of my identity there was no monolithic Asian experience let alone Chinese Indian Gold Coast experience um, so I guess what's coming from a place of always seeing multiplicities and finding it very interesting that suddenly in this space where you are encouraged to kind of you know just express what you were thinking and not align yourself to any greater group that in the end there was a kind of well you've said this so you must think this about this one monolithic um cultural group or identity group Mm. yeah it seems to me like what you're describing is sort of in one sense a problem of oversimplification or like a flattening and and in your piece what you're trying to do is like really complicate all this stuff like really draw out like what is it to write about this kind of work from this perspective and what are the pressures that are on you then um yeah it's it's funny because it's kind of like it's there are difficulties no matter which way you look at it from it feels like because like i totally um have heard other people express that idea that you just pointed to of like I'm getting opportunities that I don't feel I'm ready for because people for whatever reason want to have me there, want me to want me to represent a certain group or something like that, um, want me to seek a box even. Um, and then I also hear conversations where people are like, that person only got that opportunity because they're of this particular background, you know, and I didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly fraught. And I think my intention with the essay and I guess just my general thinking about it is not to kind of see which is the right answer, which is the right way of being. I think I just really want to think about it deeply and kind of see, I guess it's more of a, I'm investigating the why, not the like, what will the, what will eventuate, but just like, how has this played out in such a way? Um, Mm. And I guess why, why is this right now seen as the most kind of beneficial way of, I don't know, I guess, thinking? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, are you, because you're researching it for a PhD, are you looking at it a little bit from, I know talking about one's PhD is like the worst line of questioning and I will <laughs> not make you talk about this too much, but I'm just wondering about are you looking at it from a kind of a historical, like comparative um standpoint too like what it used to be like maybe in the 90s and then what it's like now yeah I, I'm looking at um li- Australian literature from the 2000s onwards just okay. to kind of a, a narrower scope so I don't write a colossal thing that no one will read or examine um, <laughs> comparing how in the early days um say with um like the poet Jaya Savage and the writer Nam Lee how in their works they would sometimes engage with their cultural identity, especially in the boat, that first short story was really um, playing with the idea of authorial identity. Mm. Um, and then looking at more contemporary works where there's a real, I guess, like lean in to identity, which I think um, there's a lot of that happening currently in America with, uh, I guess, like the new confessional mode and just comparing, I guess I was, I am interested in, I guess, the 
the author's choice in setting out to write about those topics and to what degree of intensity, but more so the reception around, uh, the, the reception that I guess eventuates after publication, because with, say with Jaya Savage, his first collection, there was not a great deal about his personal identity at all, not just cultural, but just personal identity, but a lot of the um, press and a critical reception had a great deal to do with um, that he grew up in Bribey Island, that his father was Indonesian, um, about his socioeconomic background. So I'm more interested in, um, yeah, I guess between early 2000s to now, how the shift in focusing on the writer themselves, whether or not it has to do with what appears in their work. Mm, mm. I guess, yeah, that's, that is totally fascinating because yeah, it does, it does feel, I mean, I haven't been like writing and working in Australian poetry for too, too long, but I guess, God, it might be coming up to 15 years or something. And, um, it does feel as if there's like a, um, an, an intensity, um, around this conversation that is possibly a very good thing, but I also feel as if the conversations I have offline are sort of like with, especially with non-white writers, it's like, God, this is stressful. Like this is, this is a lot of expectation on me to write a certain way, to represent a certain group, you know, to, and to do all these things that like all mm -hmm. of a sudden I'm being asked to do, you know, it's, yeah. yeah. It's quite a, I guess at the beginning when I was really young and was first publishing, just because I thought this is the expectation, this is what I must do, I guess I'll do it without even thinking about it. I was just happy to be involved and it was only later that I thought I actually, the expectation is kind of in my, I'm not addressed in my head, but I can say no to these people and I can say, what if I wrote about this instead and nothing detrimental would happen because I think it really um like editors and organizers of events who ask for this kind of identity focused writing or content it comes from a good place it comes from a place of um I do not like the word platforming but it's a kind of uh you know <laughs> voice to da -da -da -da. Mm. Um, so I understood it, it was never it's not a malicious thing to do and I'm very happy to just say I have no expertise in this area outside of being Asian. And I don't, I don't know what it's like to be Asian. I don't know what it's like to be me. I don't wake up every day and go another great day to be Asian Australian. <laughs> <laughs> if I did, maybe I would have a very, I don't know, fruitful career. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think once you kind of realize that there is a kind of outward expectation, but you're by no means obliged to follow what you can just kind of go, hey, I don't, that's not interesting to me. If it is interesting to you, then totally go for it. Mm, but if it's mm. not something that you think about, um, then it's not something you have to write about. Yeah. I mean, I did, I read an interview with you in Liminal where you were talking about being given the really great advice to, to slow down mm -hmm. and um, how you had a, a manuscript, but you were like, you wanted to sort of take a pause with it. And that might have been Sarah who told me that. Yeah, right. A thousand years ago. Yeah. I, yes, but that I have been, that has happened to me where um, publishers have said, do you have a book? And I kind of did, but I understood that it was, I just felt too early. I had technically enough pages. Were they good poems? Probably not. Mm. Would they have been published? Perhaps if, if they'd asked for them. Um, but I, I don't know. It's something about how my brain works if I kind of understand I'm being offered something because of something I can't actually control and if ultimately the outcome is not I wouldn't want to look back on my career and think I published my first book I'm not so happy with it but I could not turn down that opportunity I would have I I had to take it I think I don't know maybe if I had a slight like tiny tiny slightly different personality I would think it's I would have to say yes I'm not going to get this opportunity again yeah but I think a lot of it probably with Sarah's mentorship as well um I just thought is the reason why this book is being published something that I'm proud of or is it something that exists outside of me do I feel rushed to publish and if the answer is yes I feel rushed to publish um then I I, I won't do it I don't know if that's that's maybe 
unwise, but that's how I operate. No, I mean, I think it's exceptionally wise and very, you know, it takes a lot of wherewithal, a lot of strength. Like it is that thing. I mean, you, you summed it up that thought of this opportunity is not going to come again. You know, that's that scarcity. And yet, I guess it just takes a lot of a lot of confidence to be able to just go, okay, well, it, it will come again. This is oh, yeah. vanity on my part where it was kind of, even if this never comes up again, I'd rather have no book at all than a bad book that someone might laugh at. And that someone could be me, but I would rather have nothing than something yeah. that I'm not fully ready to stand behind. And, and they sometimes are a bit disheartened when I say, just slow down. And they say, no, but I want to publish here, I want to publish here. And I said, you will look back at your oslet and be so disappointed because I look back at my oslet and I think I have to publish more so that everything that appears on the first page is way back, way back in like the last century because the internet's stuff sticks around forever. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think in that interview too you said something about um, a, a poem from when you were very young, like under 10. Oh, the horse is around. Is around. <laughs> yeah. 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 But no, I mean, I feel the same. Like, yeah, it's just like. God, can we get rid of that stuff, please? But we can't. It's just it lives on online forever. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll try to bring it back around to reviewing because that is I've gone way way off track and not what I was planning to do. Um, I was recently asked to do a bit of reviewing work. I didn't know what the books were going to be, but I said no. I have a lot of trouble saying no in life. So it was, you know, I'm grateful to the person I said no to for not getting mad at me. Um, yeah, I, I love writing reviews in theory, but I never felt when I was doing the work that I had the ability to say what I really wanted to say. And there was a, a really great um, section in your article. Let me have a look if I can find it here. I've got too many notes here. So you're talking about the, the white critic and saying, rather than offering a robust and meaningful engagement with the text itself, reviews like this one you're referring to by a white critic, out of self-preservation, laziness or deference, prefer to remain within the boundaries of what can and cannot be said about identitarian writing. And that really hit home for me because it's kind of this thing of like, I honestly feel like if I were given, if I were given a book by somebody and I didn't feel like like it's exactly the way you put it in the article. It's like I don't, I don't feel like I have the permission to necessarily engage with this work on a on a properly critical level. At the same time, that is totally me being self-preserving, like covering my ass, um, being lazy, and, and deferring, and all that anybody wants for their work is the dignity of it being critiqued on the same level as everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. So... Well, most, not everyone. But not everybody, I suppose, not everybody wants that. <laughs> but, yeah, I suppose at, at the at the bottom of all this is just fear. Oh, like, absolutely. And yeah. it's not um, unfounded by any means. The internet is very loud. And, again, things last on the internet. So if someone says something about you, mm. it could very well remain there. Um and also humans aren't used to having such a great span of feedback. It used to be you could write a review that was critical of a book and then maybe some people write some letters, but you wouldn't sit at home and then have all of this, all of these negative comments coming at you at home in your bed. Um, but yeah, literally in your bed. You haven't <laughs> yeah. even got proper clothes on and someone's oh, like, you're horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also what I found quite interesting is how there is that sense of like, what is the thing that is blocking the person from engaging with the work itself? Is it the author's identity? Is it the group, the identity group to which they belong? Is the reviewer themselves worried that they are conflating critical engagement with the text, with critical engagement, not just with that individual author, but with the cultural or identity group that they represent? Because um, all of it is, because whether you say yes or no to something, you don't go through that process that slowly. It's kind of an immediate gut feeling of like, yes, or like, no, I can't, something will, I won't be able to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just really interested in, 
I guess, um, not to turn the interview around. But no, yeah, let's what do was, it. <laughs> uh, what, um, what was the thing that kind of prevented you? Like what made you feel I, I can't do this? Well, maybe I, I'll make it a bit more concrete. Um, so, because in that example, I don't, I, I didn't know what I was saying no to. I was just saying no to like oh, reviews yeah, in general. Sure. But better example would be, um, I hope this doesn't bother anyone talking specifically about it, but I did review... Uh, an anthology called Writing to the Wire, which was put together by Dan Disney and Kit Kellen for Mascara, probably 2015. Um, and I, <laughs> I didn't love some of the poems in it, but mainly like where I, I'm going to say, went for the jugular. I really didn't. It was probably the mildest thing you've ever read in your life. But like where I said something slightly negative was um, in relation to the poems in the anthology by white writers mm -hmm. because I felt like it was weird and uncomfortable that there was this anthology of writing by asylum seekers and then they were placed in conversation with poems by people living in suburban Melbourne who were like, this is very bad and it's, it's terrible. And I don't know, they just didn't sit comfortably together in my mind. So that's what I was trying to go for in the review. But um, yeah, when it comes to critiquing work by writers of color, non-white writers, I think the one of the big things for me is I'm like, I'm gonna miss something. There's something in here that I don't have access to or the ability to understand. And so I can't critique it properly because it's like, there's something here that I just can't see. Mm -hmm. that was a big that's... sigh <laughs> <laughs> because I know that like that shouldn't stop me right that shouldn't stop I should still just I should still just give it be giving like an honest critique and if I miss but something then I miss something yeah I and I think um what has kind of been deleted is the possibility for people to make mistakes and not even make mistakes but to miss something um because even I don't know unless I read a book that was by a Chinese Punjabi woman living on the Gold Coast between 1995 and 2013 I would not and even then that would not be an identical experience um because even if I like reading Alice Pung there are definitely things I would miss because she's a different person to me we have a different cultural experience um but I understand with, I, I mean, I guess it doesn't really happen that often anymore where white writers are asked to review um, works by non-white writers. But the real, I guess, hesitation is they won't, they won't understand. There'll be a mistranslation. But I think that complete um, absence of engagement is kind of the harmful thing because then you're missing, making mistakes, but then yes, also learning. Mm. Oh, Thing, even if you're not learning about a culture because you wouldn't just from reading one book but learning about another person's experience that is different to yours mm. uh, and even though it's done in kind of the spirit of inclusivity uh and I know that now multiculturalism is a term that kind of gets a, a bad rap but in the like the olden days term the very like um Pollyanna-ish multiculturalism um, it is where people meet perspectives that they don't experience in their daily life and it's okay to be uncomfortable and it's okay to not know because that's how human beings learn. Mm. Um, and I guess too it doesn't help that the I guess critical culture in Australia is one of, of such niceness and politeness. There aren't really very many critics who are just critics um, like James Lay, brilliant critic, that's his job. A lot of, and my, myself included, are writers who then also do criticism um, out of interest or to make a bit of extra money or both. Um, and then it does become tricky because are you reviewing your friends or a friend of a friend who you don't want to offend? Um, and the thing is that I know if I review a work with a more critical lens, I'm very happy for when and if I have a book out for someone to review me with that same level of focus and if they don't like the book I mean I'm saying that I'll be fine but um sure it will suck 
but I understand that that is the nature of publishing. You put your work out there, you're done with it, and then people can think what they want of it and engage with it. And it also yeah. helps that I live in Brisbane, I feel there's not, um, there's not, you don't walk down the street and then run into someone who you saw at a launch who you forgot to message back or something. <laughs> Oh no, I forgot to message someone. No, you're right, you're right. Um, yeah, one of, one of the other things that you wrote in the article was that you don't need to subscribe to a writer's ideology nor share any element of her, her biography to feel a personal connection to her work. And I guess it's the, the connection as a reader is one thing and that, that's absolutely, I think it would be hard to find somebody who disagreed with that. But it's also true of your role as a critic, right? Like you don't need to share any element of somebody's biography to be allowed, able, capable of reviewing their work. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess it strikes me listening to you talk about that, that getting a review that sort of points out all the flaws in your work is one thing, but getting a review that soft pedals and like pussyfoots around things that you can tell is just somebody being nice is so condescending um that's way worse i guess that is what my personal feeling is yes i would do much work because if someone wrote something very pointed about me i would think at least they know i can take it but if someone really kind of padded everything i would think not only do i do they think that i'm bad at this they also think i'm extremely fragile and can't <laughs> it. am i extremely fragile can handle it? um <laughs> And in a, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it could also be, um, I got a late um, autism diagnosis and I now understand why directness is very comforting to me. So I would much prefer someone say that was a horrible piece of writing. I hated it. Mm. That idea was actually flawed than mm. for someone to talk at me for half an hour for me to then find out that maybe they sort of disagreed with something. Yeah. I know that you said at the start that this was really about looking at the problem from, from all angles and thinking about why and how we got here rather than trying to offer solutions. And, you know, God knows I, I can't think of any, any solutions really off the top of my head, but I'm wondering if there's like, if there's one thing we could dial up or down what we would do. I, I feel like, like, I wonder if part of it is just the fact that it is such a small scene. Like I had a, a conversation with James Chang a couple of months ago and we, we talked about the the sort of the claustrophobia of the scene. And if we could just like double the population of people doing this work, then maybe. But I don't know. I That seems too easy, too, too simple. I think that, yeah, I, I don't know if there is a solution in that sense I think it's just the way that social like not quite movements but I guess social beings work is that we kind of cycle through an idea take it to one extreme then the other extreme and then maybe mm. it's somewhere in the middle mm. and I think what will kind of be beneficial is if people spoke about it more and because I um taught a class last year at um, QUT when it was about the, the um, title of the class was Dangerous Ideas. The subject was literary ideas, um, beginning with the Lionel Shriver BWF imbroglio. Um, and I would kind of enter the class and the students would see me, see what I looked like and think, okay, we have to talk in this way. We have to be very careful because our tutor looks like this. And then I would come in and kind of talk the way I talk and especially be quite careful because I ask students to just never really give my opinion but by not even halfway through maybe a quarter of the way through the semester I would see that the students really did have a lot of ideas that were conflicting within themselves that they thought they couldn't express because they weren't allowed to um, and it would kind of in the I guess the broader world would result in an echo chamber where people were saying things they didn't quite believe in fully but they understood that that was the right thing to say. And what I really loved in teaching this class was by the end of the semester, they would say, oh yeah, I really thought, I understood that like publishing culture does this because it's meant to be more inclusive, but I wondered whether in some instances it can be patronizing for writers. Um, I think just having the openness to talk about it, no matter what your background is, if it's coming from a place of 
curiosity and interest um that's the way that things will change i think mm. people do want it to change which is another subject you think maybe they don't want oh, it to I, I really don't know yeah no idea i uh i have no idea yeah mm. Mm. A place of curiosity and interest is the key thing there, right? Because, yeah, again, these off-mic conversations, some of them are, you know, the person is, like, quite stressed out and, like, this is affecting my writing and publishing life in this way and I don't really know how to handle it. And then there's another um, type of conversation, which is, like, these people are getting all the opportunities and I'm getting nothing and I'm annoyed about that. And that's not, like, that's not curiosity that's just entitlement (laughs) essentially I had a thing and now it's gone Um, (laughs) it it depends on how much I guess where you want to dedicate your energy if you want to dedicate it to uh being upset or if you just want to like go home feed your cats do your work vent with your friends but don't let it occupy you to that degree or if you want it to write about it and see what people say and see whether it contributes to the conversation. Um, Because I think there's a lot of kind of um, people will talk about it in their own bubbles, but then don't want to say anything beyond that, which gives the sense that everyone is kind of agreeing with whatever the dominant idea of the time is. um, When I published this essay, as well as um, the review of that anthology, publicly, no one would really say anything, but I got a lot of private emails saying, I wish I could support this publicly, but just letting you know, I really appreciate it, X, Y, Z, um, which I, I find, yeah, very interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. Oh. Yeah, well, like I said to you, you know, when I read it, I was like, my first thought was, I have to talk to Mindy. And my second thought was, I bet she won't want to talk to me though, because it's a podcast and when, you know, podcasts are like, you can't quite control what you're saying. I mean, half of what I've said already, I'm like, that was dumb, but, (laughs) but you know, it's like, my other thing is like, exactly like you said, people are having these conversations in their own little bubbles. Everybody feels like they can't talk about any of it because it's all third rail. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, hopefully people can hear through our voices, like, that we are, we are just kind of trying to get to some sort of, like some sort of place of like, even looking, even acknowledging that these ideas are, are there. Um, oh, absolutely. And I think if it were not for the fact that one, living in Brisbane, I don't feel like if I offend anyone, someone's going to take something away from me. Two, if I do offend someone and they take something away from me, I'm kind of at a place where if that happens, that's okay. I can always, I'll study psychology. I'll do something. <laughs> um, and also because I have, even though I'm still very early career, I guess what I've published and the length of time I've been publishing, I don't feel like something I say will tank anything. Or if it does, that maybe that's not something I wanted to be part of anyway. Mm. Um, but definitely if I had been talking about this five years ago I would be saying something very different and I'd probably be a lot more careful Mm. Uh, but I think just realizing outside of writing just kind of since COVID I've been kind of refurbishing all elements of my life and realizing that I really just have to be myself to be fine and if that includes saying things about writing that not everyone agrees with and maybe they are upset by I would rather say what I feel then conceal it and not be myself yeah Mm. oh yeah I so relate to that yeah just getting to that point I mean I think so many of us did where we're just like well I survived sitting in the house for two years with my partner and I thought that I was going you know one of us was going to kill the other (laughs) so so uh given that I made it through that why don't I just be myself Yeah. yeah and ultimately no one's going to murder me I hope but it's all quite in the scheme of things I I just see it for me at least it it all being quite low stakes if it comes to a time I mean I and I don't make my money off of writing I make it through teaching and delivering flowers casually um 
I would think I will still write for me if I can't publish and make money. It'll be hard and sad, but the stakes aren't that high. I would happily go back to work in hospitality. I loved doing that. Um, yeah, I think without COVID, I would not have come to all or any of these realizations. The Brisbane fact is a big one too. I think you Brisbane poets are fearless. Fearless. Oh, no, there's no real conflict here. There aren't that many of us. <laughs> it's always sunny. It's warm. Everyone's <laughs> to be grumpy. Um, That's right. Yeah, the suburbs are quite large, so you you can see someone at a launch and then not see them for nine to twelve months because they're on the other side of the river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these these population and like physical characteristics are a big. They are you know I you can't so. dismiss them. Yeah. Um. I did want to ask you before I before I uh, stop grilling you. Um, I did want to ask you about editing Peril, which I know you did from from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty, because that is obviously a, a very particular kind of writing and publishing ecosystem. What were some of the pressures that the writers you worked with there were under, and what did Peril offer them? Peril, I really I really enjoyed editing Peril. I think because Peril had been around since 2006 and really the initial intention, um, Hua Fem, who's the founding editor, the intention was to kind of at the time bring those voices to the mainstream because they really were ignored or only brought out in a kind of very tokenistic way in an anthology here or there. Mm. And what I loved about Peril was that there was the real freedom to not to publish not just non-white writers. I, I would commission white writers pretty often um, and indigenous writers as well. Um, and it was more about engaging with the idea of, I don't know, I guess cultural, I mean, I guess cultural diversity, um, but without having to, I hope at least I tried without having to say something political or without having to I will publish this work as long as you're making a statement on your identity. Of course, that would happen quite often because of the magazine's structure and a lot of the um, works we would receive from open calls would be, a, um, it was quite sweet. A lot of high school students or recently graduated high school students would kind of go, I've never had a place to talk about my identity before. Can I publish here with you? Can I talk about what it was like to grow up X, Y, Z? Um, so I, I liked having the, I don't know, I guess not being bound to an ideology within an ideology. It was more, are you interested in writing about your cultural stuff? Are you interested in not writing about your cultural stuff? It was more about, um, I think maybe um, Eleanor Jackson, who was the previous editor and then the board chair, she gave me a lot of freedom, which was really lovely. Um, but I, I know that I would very often get emails from um, readers who would want to publish with us who would say, um, I'm South Asian, I'm Indian, is it okay if I still submit to you? And I said, I'm I'm Indian, that's in Asia. You're Asian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was kind of, I really enjoyed editing the magazine. And I think once I started to be conflated with peril in my own writing life, where I would kind of because of course it would look, she, she edits an Asian Australian magazine. It must be the thing that she is interested in and wants to write about. Um, I found that quite difficult. And then I realized, yes, from the outside, it must really look like I'm only interested in Asian Australian writing. That must be what I write, whatever Asian Australian writing as a genre is. Um, and I just began to see the difficulty in um, having the intent to bring writers who have previously would have been marginalized because of their identity into mainstream publishing and there was a lot of talk within peril about how much are we um i guess fulfilling that original intent or are we accidentally um kind of keeping things separate and so that was the decision then to sort of step away once you realized that it was getting a bit too much like oh mindy she's the editor of peril kind of thing but no it was more it was right at the beginning of of covid and it right. was kind of i thought i can't do much more than just exist in my home yeah I, I don't know if i can uh continue doing anything um and also <laughs> funding and get very 
very competitive at the time and mm, yeah with, it was bad yeah interesting with publications because for a while there was just peril and then there was peril and mascara and then there was peril mascara jed penciled in and liminal and mm. it was very interesting to see how funding bodies would go this round it goes to this diverse publication this round it goes to that diverse publication um so that was kind of and that was also something that we thought about of like now that there are so many do we need to exist in the way that we have do we just want to archive our publications so people can return to things do we need to specifically seek out this new work um so it was kind of it was more the timing of covid started the phd um, and because everyone is based in melbourne i would often travel to melbourne for meetings and then i thought i'm not traveling outside of this suburb <laughs> mm. um, and I realized as well that while I loved editing individual pieces, that the role of being an editor was not for me. I could I could do it, um, but I understood how much passion I would have to have consistently for that kind of work. Mm. Um, and I realized that if I continued, I wouldn't be doing the writers or the magazine justice. Um, I was interested in others' work. But I realized ultimately I was more interested in my own. Um, and I think once I kind of realized that kind of selfishness, I thought, okay, let's let's then do the right thing. And um Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not selfishness though, in, in by any stretch. Like I think any role like that, you know, about three years is about right. You know, you sort of do you do your service and you you con you contribute. And then you do have to kind of go, okay, well, this is taking up 20 hours of the week now and I have no mental energy left for my own writing and reading. Um, it's a very empathetic read. On <laughs> no, for sure though, like seriously, it should all come with a time limit. Um, I did want to ask you about reading. Uh, I, I noticed in, again, in that interview that you did towards the end, you mentioned my favorite poet, Jane Kenyon. It is a horrible question to put somebody on the spot, but is this somebody who you look to? I mean, I know that you're being mentored by Sarah, but um, are there particular writers, poets, authors who spring to mind as like leading lights for you? Um, Zadie Smith, for sure. I think in um, this essay, that's an ABR, there are a lot of echoes um, of Zadie Smith's Fascinated to Presume, which you published in the LRB. Yeah, yeah. Like, am, I, am I just reproducing? this essay <laughs> look I mean it's a great <laughs> essay so may as well like yeah if, if that's what that is um so certainly Zadie Smith um Robert Lowell I have always loved to kind of return to his work very often um it is very hard to answer this question on the spot but I think with confidence I can say the writer I return to the most for any reason would be Zadie Smith I um saw her speak at the opera house maybe 2019 and mm. I, I didn't believe I was a person who got starstruck um until I was waiting in line and there were two girls in front of me talking to her and then someone brought her a glass of wine and I thought okay I'm next and I went up to her and I gave her my I gave her a copy of NW for her to sign which oh it's not there anymore um and then she asked my name I said Mindy and then she said something and then I said oh this novel really inspired me um or it really got me through um the book that I'm working on and she said oh what's your book about and I looked at her and I said I don't know and she said have you just started and I said no I've got about 45,000 words and she said okay and I said okay bye and so I walked <laughs> from the opera house back to my hotel full of shame, oh, <laughs> shame no. regret fear and awe oh no <laughs> This is what happens. Just never meet anyone. I would, I would do it again. I would do it again every day to feel yeah. that embarrassment, but to just be in her yeah. orbit. <laughs> I'm sure she gets that kind of thing just, yeah, a hundred times every signing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about this. I feel very excited to put this out, and I hope that I hope that you feel good about it. Oh, 
That was Mindy Gill. I really hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, God, I really, I just want to go to Brisbane so bad listening to that, um, especially on a rainy morning like this. I'm just like, what am I doing here? It's so wet and cold and horrible. <laughs> Why don't I just go to Brisbane? I did just want to take a very quick minute here just to uh, follow up on my last episode, The Collapsing Building, story about Canberra and poets there and my uh, fraught relationship with my hometown. Um, yeah, just just really thanks to everybody who said such beautiful and moving things about that episode um I didn't quite realize until I hit publish um how much of myself I had put into that (laughs) so I was a bit like oh yeah spent a couple of days feeling a little bit overwhelmed but um yeah everybody has been very very encouraging and kind and Yeah, I wish I could do something like that every week. I did have to make one very important correction, though, which is, I mean, not surprising. A lot of different people in that story. um, And I was never going to get everybody's story exactly perfectly right. Uh, I I knew that going in. Um, And, yeah, obviously, you know, it's a story of me and my partner, Tom, living in Canberra for about five or six years longer than I wanted to and so it's it's tricky because I'm telling his story but his view on it is a little different so yeah I was I was quite nervous um, about what he was going to think about it because I hadn't run any of it past him (laughs) he just knew that I was making this this thing that was taking quite a bit of time and yeah so he listened to it eventually and then uh he sat me down afterwards and he was like that was really great um I do just want to make one correction though I was like please absolutely I will I'll correct the record on the show like what what is it let me know um I'm sure I didn't get everything right and he said well the thing is They weren't centipedes, they were millipedes. So, you know what, he's he's right. And I remember we were constantly having that argument in that bloody, that little garage. Like, I was always like, ah, there are these centipedes that live under the carpet. And Tom would say, millipedes, (laughs) they're millipedes. (laughs) Yeah. So look, I just needed you all to know that. (laughs) 